PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Just to say it's not really sponsored by anyone, it's sponsored by us, LogRocket, and we're giving it away for free. The podcast is free, the product is not free. There's a free trial, we could split hairs about whether or not that's free to you, but anyway, that's it. There are no more ads. If you're interested and you want us to know that you came from the podcast, please go to logrocket.com slash podrocket. If you don't care, logrocket.com works just fine. Thanks. Today, Ben and I talked to Sean Wang, better known as Swix, about all kinds of stuff on this episode. It's kind of difficult to summarize. It's just a conversation. But uh, I asked him things like, how would you describe what you do? So his answer was infinite learning and infinite building. We talked about his time and experience uh, as moderator of the React.js subreddit. We talked a little bit about Medium and why we don't like it. Developer relations, how you scale that, just really all kinds of stuff. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope he comes back. I hope you enjoy this episode. So let's get started. Hey, with me is Swix, Sean Wang. We're going to call him Swix because that's his name. How are you? That's how I roll. <laughs> that's how you <laughs> Thanks roll. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you. We're psyched for you to kind of break the news on Pod Rocket. Yes, I got the scoop. You did get the <laughs> scoop. Um, and you said nice things about it. It was doubly pleasant. You actually made a really good couple of interviews and I was very impressed. I was like, wow, this is quality that I come to expect of LogRocket's blog. And now you're bringing it to podcasting. That's great. Thank you. We are by no means professionals, maybe talented amateurs. Maybe we're, we're definitely, I feel like we're getting better as we do it, but that's really not that uncommon. Also, is it two in the morning where you are? Have you just switched your schedule altogether? It is two in the morning, but I am working East Coast, now West Coast hours out of Singapore. And that means I start work at round about midnight and go till 8 a.m. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so you'd have switched your whole, like, I was sleeping. That seems like... Yeah, I sleep during the day. I don't know what the sun is anymore. I, I actually relate. just did a workout at 9 a.m., which made me feel like a high achiever. <laughs> because like I'm, I'm in there with like all the really committed fit people and then it's, there's me <laughs> it's just like i'm i'm doing workout at the end of my day <laughs> honestly though you probably get more hours of daylight than we do because at least i, I get up it's like kind of dark i work all day and then by the time i'm ready to take a break from working it's already darker but i feel like at least you probably get a couple hours after you're done working at a.m yeah, yeah so so we're we're one degree north of the equator so we get just by default, more hours of daylight, especially during the winter, than you than you do. So I think we should normalize, especially because we're all working from home. Just taking a walk in the middle of the the workday. If you got nothing on, just go take a walk, like get some air. It's healthy. <laughs> Probably easier when I imagine it's it's a bit warmer where where you are than the. Uh, it is. The oh, I cold. forgot. Yeah, yeah, it is. But cold. yes, it's still a good idea. <laughs> I just stick my head out the window, and that's sort of good. And oh, it's twenty. It's twenty degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius cold. So, okay. There's a million places we could start. I guess my first question is, if someone asks you, what what do you do? How do you describe yourself? Because you could do a lot. It's not that like I'm unclear on the things that you do, but I don't know a word for it. Yeah. I call it infinite building and it's somewhat of an aspirational term. It's a twist from Reed Hoffman's term of infinite learner, right? Someone who's never done learning. My only problem with the infinite learner moniker is that What's the point of learning if you don't put it to practice? So actually, it's more about the putting things to practice than it is about learning for me. And you'll learn on the job. So that's kind of what I think about. And then the the domains that I'm currently thinking about is developer tooling and developer communities, because I think those two kind of make up the developer experience that wraps around any product, language, framework, company, whatever. 
and it so happens that my career has kind of fallen into working on these things. So I think that it's, it's my thing for now. So when you start thinking about, say, like Clubhouse, for example, is this just a personal interest that you're kind of just interested in how that technology develops? Or where does that fit in in the model that you just described? Clubhouse is a narrative violation in the sense that it doesn't fit the trends that I thought made sense. Mm-hmm. So when something is successful and it, and it doesn't make sense, I'm very obsessed by it. Like some, some people would just like outright dismiss it, ignore it, or hate on it publicly. So these are our fair reactions, but then I'm always open to thinking that I'm wrong or it could be wrong. So that actually made me write a blog post about this. So, so I, the, the context of this is I actually wrote a blog post basically saying why Clubhouse will fail. And I listed the reasons. And then I, I saw my reasons once I, once I wrote them down. And I took a walk, again, very good for health, and came back and decided that all my reasons were crap. Then I did a complete 180 and said Clubhouse would be successful for the reasons that I stated. So I'm very interested in products. I'm interested in startups, right? These are all just hypotheses on how humans behave. And the closer a mental map we can have on how humans behave, the, the more successful we'll be generically in life. And I just think it's an interesting thing to study in general. Like sometimes we behave counter to things that make sense. We are more emotional sometimes than rational. And that's a legitimate behavior. And we should respect that. I feel like at least at LogRocket and probably a lot of other similar kind of companies, we're super logical. And that makes sense. That's how you build products quickly and build good products. As the person who's thinking the most about content, for example, I tend to think emotionally a lot, you know, like, does the audience care about this? Is it going to annoy a significant subset of the population? And do I want it to? Sometimes I do, but like, there is room for it. I guess it's the question is, what are the percentages, right? Like, is it a 50-50 split between emotion and logic? Suddenly we got really kind of Star Trek very quickly, and that's not what very I Star do. Trek. Yes. Yeah. So just to riff off, I definitely run myself on like a very improvisational thing. Like someone says something and I'll, I'll key off of it rather than stick to the <laughs> and any plan. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if, you, if you've heard of Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman, but he definitely divides things up into system one and system two thinking, right? Where one's kind of like the subliminal, fast reflex, instinctive, emotional element. And then the other is kind of the logical brain, the one where you actually process all all the reasons, the pros and cons and weigh them rationally and then arrive at a decision. And actually, it turns out that it's it's probably closer to like 80, 20, 80%. A lot of things that we decide and we think we know, we actually decide on a very emotional, reactive basis. And then we're very good at backfilling, back rationalization we'll make up a reason why, why we believe what we believe rather than weigh the pros and cons and then arrive at our conclusions. You know, by the way, that's exactly what I did for my Clubhouse asset. I decided that I didn't like Clubhouse. I therefore decided that it would fail. And then I made up a bunch of reasons. And it took a lot of effort and a little bit of self-humiliation because I publicly committed to saying like, I'm going to publish this post saying why Clubhouse will fail. And I, I tweeted that. And then two hours later, I was like, no, I'm wrong. That's a very minor public commitment, but even that, that took me a while to come to terms with it, to contradict myself and change my mind in public. I think it's a good exercise, and I just think it's, it's a way people behave. Like We should respect that. Even the way we make tech choices, it's a lot of non-conscious stuff going on in our heads. For me, when I looked into Clubhouse, I decided that you said you didn't like it and you said it would fail. I decided that I didn't like it, so that probably means it's going to succeed. That's usually <laughs> how it goes. And then you're right. Then I started to go looking for reasons why. And I found a lot of GDPR issues. Lots has been written about that in Clubhouse and how it's perhaps not great. I don't know the veracity because I haven't gotten an invite for Clubhouse and I haven't sought one out. So maybe. 
I don't know. But you know what? The other thing is that like for sure, when we get say articles submitted, right, that are uh, supposed to be persuasive, lots of times it's clear that they've come up with the argument before they've come up with the evidence. So that makes sense. I'm interested in talking about content for developers. Oh, you're an interesting case, right? Because you've spent time making content for developers, obviously. Mm -hmm. You've spent time moderating content for developers, which I'm super interested in that, right? You're not still a moderator of the React subreddit, right? I serve as a moderator for the r slash React.js subreddit, going from about 40,000 people to about 220,000. And then I stepped down. That was about two years. Yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's a fun ride. But for me, my interest moved away from React. And I didn't feel like it was genuine for me to keep hogging the spot when I could give it up for others. So my last act as a moderator was to appoint four new moderators and add a bit more diversity to the mod team because it was all, you know, Asian and white guys living in the East Coast. So we added a bit more diversity there. When you scaled that subreddit, and I kind of already, I know some of it because I watched it happen, but what are the, some of the policies that you put in intentionally to kind of help guide that community outside of maybe just kind of the standard Reddit rules? I actually was reviewing the rules that I made. The moderation powers are very limited on Reddit. You can only remove content, right? You can't really positively promote something. Your vote counts the same as anyone else's vote. There's no super vote. You can, you can pin stuff, but that's a very limited functionality and there's a lot of competing space for that. So really it's more about just keeping hate out <laughs> and developers can get really, really upset when you do that. But then they can also get really in, in really inane arguments about frameworks. And we were a framework subreddit, right? And the biggest one. So <laughs> it was a challenge. Like Actually, the whole reason I got the moderator job was because there was a framework war going on in, inside the comments. And Danny Abramov from the React team saw it. And he was like, hey, next time you see this, you should lock it down. And I was like, I can't. I'm, I'm not a moderator. And then he just goes away for like five minutes and he says, now you are. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's all I got. It was, there's no application or anything. But I mean, he trusted my judgment. So reducing framework bashing and then also deciding things like, like a weird policies. Like what happens when someone posts not safe for work apps, but like made in React to the React subreddit? What happens oh, yeah. then? Because like this is kind of a professional setting, but also not, you know, 100% professional because of social media. And it's, it is legitimate technology made. It was like open source, like you could go see the source code and everything. It just, it just happened that the, the content used to be not safe for work. And that was a weird call. Like we get that once a year. And for those interested, the call that I made was that we treat everyone like adults. Reddit has functionality for flagging not safe for work posts. So just flag your post as not safe for work. And if you don't like it, turn that filter on and you won't see it. And those who don't mind can see it. So we try to be a little bit sex positive in, in that way that we're not prudes. But I, I got some flack for that. You're going to make some people upset when it's 200,000 plus people. And by the way, 200,000 plus is, is the people who are actively subscribed. There's probably two to three times more who are completely passive, who just happen by on any given day. I have the stat somewhere, but it's in the millions, the monthly active visits. It's a tough challenge. I think that's the negative stuff, right? Like the rules that you make is like, do not do X, do not do Y. And then the positive stuff is all the initiatives that you can take. So I started the monthly job board, the monthly reverse job board, like who's available. And then I also started the beginner Q&A. And the whole goal of that was to have a central space because the problem with a large community as well, you get a lot of beginners and some experts. And the experts are what make the community really compelling for the people who are beginners and intermediates because they show you some depth to what's being learned. But just the sheer number of beginners are always going to outnumber everyone else. So how do you contain and figure out the balance 
like you only have like top 20 posts every day and it's going to be a mix of beginner and advanced content. You need a way to contain the beginner questions. And so basically I just made a beginner thread and just said like, this is very obvious where to put your questions if you're a beginner. I made it when I was not so certain in React. So I basically just made the promise that I would answer every single question. Some months that that would work out to about 500 questions and answers in that thread. But in the process, you get really good at answering everything. And you also get a lot of content ideas because you can see the, the same questions pop up every time. So you actually see a lot of instructors snooping around in that thread and going like, here's my answer to that. And that's a blog post or a course or whatever. And that's great. Uh, because all of that, us are nodding our heads. It's a podcast. You can't say we're all like, <laughs> yes, that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> so I like it. It's part of my whole philosophy on, on learning in public. And I try to encourage others to do it as well. But most people don't take me up on it. That's just the, the way things are. But the ones that do, I really support them. Yeah, no, I, I remember when that particular subreddit was clearly growing. And I was thinking like, okay, now I'm seeing fewer articles show up on the front page and maybe more discussions or more questions, which seemed like a, a better balance. From a selfish standpoint, I, you know, my publication started suffering because we see less posts. It would, they would either get removed or... Why? I don't know. I never understand <laughs> what... In each subreddit, and this actually will lead up to my next question about niche communities, but like each subreddit has its own moderators and therefore its own kind of rules, but it would yeah. drive me crazy. Like I would see, and it wouldn't necessarily be me submitting, especially maybe in the early days, but now that we thankfully, like I'm so grateful that the people come and read our blog, but yeah. when we were trying to sort of get out there, we get a post that would get like 50 upvotes and then it would get taken down because we submitted it, you know? So like technically it's yeah. against the rules and I understand that. But on the other hand, the community found it really useful and upvoted it a lot. Yeah. So you're kind yeah. of stuck in a weird spot. I'm not sure it's against the rules at all, even. So I, I've been generally pretty supportive of that kind of stuff because the rules actually read that it's not okay to be a company account that doesn't participate in the community, right? Like that's what it actually says. It's, it's okay to post your own links, but it's not okay to only post your own links and not interact because the whole point is to have a community rather than just have a bunch of bots posting things automatically from an RSS feed. So <laughs> no, 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 I get it. it. It is a little tricky and I don't, there's no, like you and I can talk about this now, but there's no way to engage Reddit yeah. that way. Yeah. Because I might say, at least in LogRocket's case, the authors are the community. They're the ones writing it. Yeah. They're the ones writing these posts and we don't, <laughs> we weren't spamming every post. Yeah. But I have since moved on. I'm at peace with it. Because again, it's so hard to talk to each different one. However, I'll move on. Kate and I talked to Cassidy Williams a few weeks ago, and I asked her, where do you think things are going in terms of, I don't know that I actually brought up communities. I'm sure she did because I think she's smarter than I am. And so the she was talking about, I think what's really important or what will happen this year is is niche communities. And this is my interpretation that maybe some of these communities can get unwieldy and maybe the React subreddit was like that. Like if it's 200,000 people, I mean, it is the most popular framework. So the questions I'm leading up to is, do you agree? Do you think niche communities are on the up or do they just kind of are supplemental? I don't mean to pit the two of you together. Sorry. No, no. I mean, we're friends and um, appreciate everything that she does. I just don't think like it's a new thing. It's always been a thing. Mm. Niche has always been a part of the internet ever since like, I don't know, IRC or like Usenet groups, you know, like we're just inventing different forms of niche, niche communities, but they all, they all always exist. There's always a need for them and there'll always be a need for broader broadcast social media. And the reference that I will send people to on this topic is Ben Thompson, who writes Stratechery. He wrote a post about this called Social Media 2.0. 
where he actually made a case for why both of these things should coexist, why there is a broad broadcasting like Twitter. And then there, there are focused communities like Reddit or WhatsApp groups or Telegram groups. Those are niche communities too. I have my own Discord group for my uh, book. And that's a niche community. And, and people are more free to express themselves in a niche community. This is the pitch, right? Like on a broadcast medium, you're kind of your whole person. Everyone can see what you say. There's no topic categorizing. It's just a feed of like everything. So it's up to you on like who you present yourself to be. Whereas a niche community, everyone's there for a certain purpose. And I don't care your political alignment, your religion in that niche community. I should not care your religion in, in other contexts. But, you know, like we can be completely opposite in every aspect of the spectrum in a niche community. But as long as like we're all fans of like football, or whatever, we can talk football in that niche community. And that's great. There's a strong place for that. And yeah, I think I think both should coexist. I don't think that this year is anything special to that. There are a new breed of community promoters online on Twitter, but they've always existed. And I think companies should leverage niche communities. I think more companies should be building and intentionally focusing on, on community, but it's nothing new. I want to double click on a new breed of community promoter. I don't know what that is, okay. and I want to hear you say it. It's people who are selling you the idea that you should build a community. And here's my $3,000 course on that. Mm. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm going, yeah, that, that actually checks out. Did you know that like people want connection? This is a new thing. Oh my, oh my goodness. Like we're, we're discovering courses. Wow. <laughs> uh, I see it in Slack groups too, right? Where it starts small and then there's the monthly subscription and then suddenly you get uh, access to office hours and there's a whole business model just for that. And that's fine. You know, like sure. you're, you're paying for time and these people have valuable expertise and it's a way to monetize for sure. Yeah. All I'm saying is it's not new. It has existed. It's very, it's useful. It's valuable. It's just not new. Checks out. I think I mentioned Dev.2 is certainly not a niche community, but a great place to launch a niche community or at least to find one, depending on the technology that you're interested in. But I guess now that I think about it, you could have done that before on a different site, right? You could have done that yeah. on Reddit. You could have done that anywhere else. You know, Dev2 made it really easy to blog and fill the space that Medium was not serving well, right? Yeah. A lot of developers were actually blogging on Medium and no self-respecting developer would blog on Medium today. They would, you know, that's my point of view. Very strong. Yes, I know. But it's just, they clearly have no respect for the reader. So let's actually move to, to a site that does. I use them for my blogging as well. My beef with Dev2 is that they, they're too brutalist in their design and I don't like it. I don't like reading my own stuff on Dev2, but other people do, so... I guess I'll stick with them, but you know, it's, it's like a weird aesthetic choice. <laughs> I don't often hear people describe brutalist architecture about websites and I appreciate it. <laughs> there are a couple of different options that like you could have a company page, for example, on dev.2 and then you could do that. It's tricky. I'll say about <laughs> that. It's tricky, but I agree with you hundred percent on medium. And in fact, I don't remember if I've mentioned it on the podcast already, but when I guess it was hacker noon and free code camp. Yeah, I think Free Code Camp, Hacker Noon, um, it was kind of a mass migration of all the big tech publications around the same time. I wish that we had talked to each other because like all of us had to figure out how to move our stuff by ourselves. <laughs> and Medium is not designed for export. So we probably could have saved each other all a lot of time had there, we actually There's just no respect for creators. Oh my god, it's terrible. You know, they they started out great and then ran themselves into the ground. Well what I saw, in fact I put it in the log rocket Slack, is I noticed that Medium, it just purchased a huge backlog of the pragmatic programmers. Okay, yeah. Like they purchased that entire backlog and then now it's up on Medium. So now they're acting much more like a traditional publisher. 
yeah, like a traditional publisher or curator, you know, where they're either getting exclusive license or whatever. So that it's a business model. And it also means that it's getting harder to find people to create new stuff. Or they could have sold subscriptions like Substack is doing and they seem to be doing fine and helping writers make money. I don't think anyone's made money with Medium like the way people are making on Substack. And that's probably a positive thing for writers. And anything positive for writers is probably positive for the people who read them. That's kind of my very minimalist take on publishing platforms. You know, not, not to say like it, it is a hard thing to do, right? And there's all the motivation stuff that they need to handle. I would not say I would do a better job. Uh, I'm just saying like other people have done a better job than Medium. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, throw you, I'll throw you a couple other ideas that are floating around in my head. So the reason for companies to invest in communities is that developer relations doesn't really scale very well. This is driven home for me by learning that GitHub serves 50 million developers and has two developer relations people, just two. And that's because they're focused more on enabling the rest of the GitHub employees to do the developer relations job rather than doing it on their own. And then they're also focused on building community rather than being an individual contributor and being the person on the stage or being the author on, on the blog. Instead, you could hold office hours to help people write their first blogs. You could consult and make it easier for people to write their slides. I've even done ghostwriting sessions, right, where I'll get two engineers there. This is one of the, the things that I did at Netlify, which is really good. We have a system called feedback letters, where when we do code reviews, we actually grade the level of our feedback. So instead of like knit or not knit, we actually grade it a bit more than that. Like this is a blocker. This is something you should review. And you can ignore this. I will not be offended versus this is something we should handle at some point, but it's not a blocker accumulates tech debt, but it's fine. We can ship it for now. So there's there's a few more gradations for this. And I was like, this is a really good idea. And then the front-end engineers were, were like, yeah, I mean, that's how we do things. And I was like, you should share this. This is really good. And they were like, okay. So basically, I just sat them down and I ghost wrote with them. And then I had their names up on there and they published it and they were, they were really proud of it. And to this day, I still get a lot of positive feedback about that post. And it's a way of me as a developer relations person extending my skills to others and then putting them up on stage and going like, I had nothing to do with this idea, but I helped them put it out there. It helps with the hiring and it helps with the general discussion around code reviews, which we all feel strongly about. So I think there's more opportunities to pursue there, basically enabling others to do developer relations to create content. And then the other thing I was going to talk about was this like idea of like everyone launching their own university, right? Mm -hmm. Like Angie Jones launched Test Automation University for Applet Tools. And that was like a really fantastic effort. And now everyone's doing the same thing. So Netlify launched Jamstack Explorers. Apollo launched, I don't know what, what it's called. I think it's Galaxy or something. And then I also see not developer-focused companies, but other companies like Lucid Charts. If you check their YouTube, it's just amazing. They teach how to do ERD diagrams and it's got millions of views because it's nothing strictly to do with Lucid Charts. It just shows you how to do the thing with Lucid Charts, but you can use any tool you want. It just so happens that they're using you know, their tool to, sure. to teach you the thing. And it's just a fantastic way to teach. Webflow University on YouTube as, as well is like just fantastic lead gen for Webflow because they're just like, here's like a tutorial for HTML and CSS. And like, it's, it's using this tool and they don't tell you what tool it is. And all the comments are just like, what the hell tool is this? This looks so cool. And of course you just come in and reply, it's Webflow come try us out. You know, like it's, it's great. It's really great organic marketing. And I think there's a startup to be made for basically X university as a service, because this is a generalizable skill that every company is building in-house. And we're not, all not talking to each other, just like you said uh, about moving off the medium. We're, we're not talking to each other. We're just like, yeah, let's throw a few devs at this thing and, and build it in-house. <laughs> you, you have just created cottage industry now where 
when this airs two weeks from that, people <laughs> will start a guild, a university guild, which yeah. actually wouldn't be that bad. Actually, I'm going to trademark that. I think university guild is not a bad name. Take it. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. But like, I think it's a great idea that someone should run with because like people will pay for this. They already are right in, in dev time and employee yeah. time. And they're all building their own learning management system. And they're, they're having to like hire their own video producers. Like Prismic actually set up a studio inside of their office. And that's great for Prismic. But like, it's also like a big upfront cost that probably could be shared among a, a few people. You have to hire your own animation people. Like all that stuff needs to be worked out by someone who actually knows what they're doing. And it's currently being figured out by just someone who, you know, had the idea and sees their peer companies doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's either someone like me or someone who is in marketing yeah. or whatever, like for sure. I wanted to go back and ask about ghostwriting. Sure. Cause, and I'll be devil's advocate for a second, right? Like for you, you could ghostwrite for in-house developers, but they were okay with you doing it. Like not every engineer, not every person is thrilled with having someone else write for them. Mm -hmm. Did you ever run into that or is not really? Well, I mean, they get to sign off and make their edits yeah. before we publish. So I haven't run into it just because they generally tend to be okay with it, with that. I think people would generally have a sense like, yes, they should write more, but then they don't feel like they have the time or they don't feel like they have the skills or they just maybe don't feel like they have their ideas is good enough to write about. And me having published my fair share of mediocre ideas mm -hmm. can give them that validation and assurance and also just take away the hard parts, right? Just yeah. you, you be the technical expert and I'll be the wordsmith or whatever. I'll, I'll like workshop it. But yeah, nothing gets published without your consent. So I don't think that it's ever an issue. It is one thing in my time working with developers and writing, I would say, you know, again, painting with a broad brush, but most web developers are the most receptive to feedback about their writing than any other profession yeah. that I've worked with in the past. Like nobody really has ever argued with me or anyone on my team over like, the placement of a semicolon or, you know, a particular where I've definitely run into that in other places. It's really more about like, thank you just for making it look and sound better. Also, another kind of universal truth is the people who think they're great writers usually are not. And the people who <laughs> doubt themselves and say like, my idea isn't very good, or I, I just can't really do it justice. They're way better than they think they are. And it just usually requires a little bit of organization or it doesn't necessarily need to sing. You just need to get the idea across, right? It doesn't have to be Shakespeare. Not, and honestly, the audience is probably not looking for Shakespeare. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. I've given up on being great. Just I think uh, Steph Smith from The Hustle has a post called How to Be Great. Just be good consistently. Just seek for good enough and then just do it enough times. You'll have one or two hits. I have probably one hit a year. And that's enough to make my reputation because by definition, the internet is a max function, not an average function, right? By definition, most people will not see most of what you see. They only see the best of what you see. So you should just like publish more and choose for more volatility rather than mediocre consistency. <laughs> like just get weird, just get weird. Indulge your like weird ideas and, and just put it out there. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I, okay. As long as it's not like actively racist or something, if it doesn't resonate. It, it just won't, won't spread and that's fine. Nobody will see it. <laughs> I always advocate for getting weird as an individual. And when, as a brand, when we think about what should go on the publication, I'm completely fine with controversy as long as it is well-reasoned and it's like strong opinion. What you don't want is to be, you know, nonsensical and, you know, screaming on a street corner. That's too far. But as an individual, maybe maybe if you're just trolling, maybe that has some value. Yeah. So I haven't done this yet, but I really want to publish a parody post 
So one of the parody posts that does really well is um, how it feels like to learn JavaScript. I don't know if you've seen that. That went viral like a while ago. That's the front end equivalent. So that was like a mock conversation between two engineers, basically spelling out like back and forth different technologies. And then at the end, the, the person trying to learn JavaScript just, just gives up and goes back to underwater like basket weaving or something. <laughs> it's pretty funny because like it's true. There is a lot of tech to learn. And for those who don't know, there is a back end equivalent called Docker. It's the future. And <laughs> it's so great. It's by the founder of Darklang, Paul Bigar, actually, he was founder of CircleCI. He was just mocking people of like, like, stop pretending this thing is the solution to all your problems. Like it's not in, like, <laughs> you know, it's really great. So I want to make fun of developers. I just haven't done it yet. <laughs> but those tend to do really well. <laughs> well, so Raj Lockett, an author on our blog, did just that. What was it about? <laughs> well, Raj, what was the post about? Sorry, who? Uh, Raj, um, <laughs> you just outed me in front of the world, Ryan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think Raj wrote a witty and fabulously humorous piece comparing like five different NPM packages for checking if something is an array. <laughs> Some of the pros and cons of different ones were like, it's cool because it's less popular or like 95% accuracy for the array.isarray utility. Or like, but obviously the, the whole joke is that you don't need an NPM package to check if something is an array. But uh, I thought it was funny back when I wrote it. <laughs> I do think that that's a genre that I would like to see more of. There's a reason I think that the programmer humor subreddit routinely appears on the front page. Like it's funny to most everyone, not just programmers. So there's a lot of opportunity there. For those interested in this genre, someone I really like who does this quite a bit is David Gilbertson. Mm -hmm. He writes a lot of parody stuff. I recommend this title, I'm harvesting credit card numbers and passwords from your site, and here's how. Yep. This was published before the NPM hacked, which actually stole some coins from, from some crypto wallet. It's still true. It can still happen today, and no one's doing anything about it. <laughs> I will co-sign that, David Gilbertson. I mean, he puts out funny stuff, but he puts out really other quality stuff, too. He's a great author. Yeah, yeah. He used to be on Medium. I don't know if he's still there. or He is, yeah, unfortunately, okay. but I'll, I'll give him a pass. We'll send him this and see what he thinks. <laughs> hey, man, we think you should have your own blog. Okay, so let's talk about the things that you are either interested in for this year or, I don't know, the things that you're frustrated by this year. Let's talk about 2021 and predictions or just, you know, how you feel about it. So the first thing I'm going to do is not answer the question and mm -hmm. talk about the next 10 years because I, I'm a big fan of megatrends and playing long-term games. I don't care what happens this year. You know what I mean? Like I care what's the long arc of, of history going to do. And part of why I write is to basically write the first draft of history. And I mentioned, you know, I have run about one hit a year. My hit last year was this idea of the third age of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And basically JavaScript is, depending how you count it, 20 something years old, 25 maybe, uh, depending on when you count the start date. But the first 10 years were kind of about establishing the language, like having a spec around it and almost failing because it went into a, a few dark years with um, ActionScript and Flash. And then the second 10 years was about coming back. In 2009, these three things happened at once. ES5, Harmony was agreed upon. The standardization process fell apart for like 10 years, but ES5 came together. NPM was started and Node.js was announced all in the same year. And that really established the foundation for everything that we do today. And that was great for 10 years. And now we're seeing some of the problems with that. So I think the next 10 years is driven by two over, overarching trends. The first is 
the big move to ES modules, like the first class module system for JavaScript that turns JavaScript from a toy scripting language. And we've just been hacking around it for the past whatever years. It turns JavaScript from a toy scripting language into an actual app ecosystem where it was with modules that you can import and export. And that's also driven by the death of IE11, which started kind of last year with the end of life of mainstream support for Windows. I forget what the what the version of it was tied to, but it will definitely be over by 2025 and the extended support will be over by 2027. So like within this decade, IE11 will be dead and everyone will be on evergreen browsers. And that means we'll be able to ship a lot less JavaScript because we don't have to transpile down. So that would be great. And side tidbit, the U.S. government will drop IE11 when the number of visits to U.S. government sites goes below 2%. Right now, that number is at 2.7, and it's dropping about 0.1% a month. So it could be possible that the U.S. government drops IE11 by this year. It's faster than people think. (laughs) Microsoft itself is dropping. I have a list on Twitter uh, if you want to look it up. The number of people that have dropped IE11 just to build support in the case internally within your company. Does that count internal use? I don't know about internal. Uh, this is just like for U.S. government sites like White House or like the social yeah. security site, whatever. The rule they have is the 2% rule. So, you know, maybe they won't drop it like right on the dot of 2%, but like that's the rule that they've set for themselves. No, that's fair. I'll shut up. Yeah. I mean, trust me, people are hounding them for it on GitHub. It's pretty funny. You can you can actually see the issues and, and they're very responsive. And I, I think they, they all know the reasons why. Anyway, so that's the first thing, you know, a, a simplification of the module ecosystem and, and uh, shipping less JavaScript. That's always a good thing. The second thing is simplifying tooling. And that's something that we talked about off air about the, one of the pain points that web developers have is that essentially JavaScript, we, we adopted this idea of a Unix philosophy of tooling because we didn't know what tools we needed. And it turns out we needed Babel, we needed a bundler, we needed a formatter, and, and we need type system, we need tests, like all these things that we just kind of piece together and causes like a billion config files in your repo. And then the permutations of them, like Babel ESLint together with TypeScript, you know, here's a blog post on how to set that up. <laughs> it's super fragile because the moment any any of the major versions change or any of your, your setups are in a mono repo or something, that just completely breaks. And that's just how things are today because they weren't designed with a holistic system in mind. And so... I think what we what we will get to is collapse layers of tooling, where we'll collapse all these jobs into one tool, uh, and that's what Deno and Rome are doing. They're they're actually offering all these things in in the same tool. And I think the other thing that's becoming pretty obvious is that we used to write JavaScript tools in JavaScript, with the idea that if you use the tool, you should be able to contribute to it. I think we're realizing that that has a cost, which is that the hot paths are being run in JavaScript, and that's pretty slow. Like we're we're giving up orders of magnitude in terms of how much speed we can be getting out of it. So new tools like ESBuild and SWC and a bunch of other tools are rewriting their core to compiled languages like Go and Rust. And it's fine, you as a user don't have to care, but your tools are 100 times faster than what it was previously before. So these are all advances that I look forward to in the next 10 years, not the next year. Now I'm going to start asking that question like 25 years (laughs) because <laughs> like, I asked a year and he just said, I'm not answering that question. And so I'm going to do that. But I was like, I was like, what is he going to say? Rust. When am I going to hear Rust? But I, heard I know. It, so I, was, I was working up. I was working up. Like, there it is. Yeah. So, so Deno, Relay, 
And there's some others I keep on the blog post, a list of like people who rewrite their core to Rust. Mm-hmm. And JavaScript developers will learn Rust to do that. So it's not a hurdle anymore. Like I used to get so much hate for like even suggesting that we move some core part to TypeScript because they're like, oh no, but that will raise the barrier of entry to people contributing to our tool. And like, that's, that's BS. People want to learn TypeScript. <laughs> it's not that different. Now people are learning Rust. So that argument's completely gone. No, 100%. Just anecdotally, you know, if I ask almost any engineer, but certainly any web dev that I ask, like, what do you want to learn? It's always Rust, so mm-hmm. it's always, or at least now. Well, cool. I think we're out of time, sadly, but I want you to come back. We'll talk about other things. And I appreciate you taking the time this time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, it's Brian again. So it turns out that running a podcast is maybe harder than we thought. And so I kind of want to hear from you. I'm genuinely interested in your feedback. We have to think about new topics, new guests. We have to find them. And don't get me wrong, we can do it, but it's a lot easier if everyone else who's listening helps. So if you'd like to suggest a topic or volunteer to be on PodRocket, we'd like to hear from you. So you can do that by going to podrocket.logrocket.com slash contact hyphen us. The hyphen is next to the delete key if you're curious. If all of that is too long, you can just email me directly, brian at logrocket.com. That'd be great. Also, if you're feeling magnanimous, be sure to like and subscribe to PodRocket. Thank you. Thank you.